I am Sophie Murphy. You are listening to The Owl, the Brooklyn Public Philosophers podcast series. Today's edition features Liz Camp, an associate professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, and of course, Ian Olasov. So uh, what can we expect for this week? Well, uh, Liz and Ian discussed philosophy and language. What do we actually do when we talk? How do we decode sentences? And most importantly, what on earth is locker room talk? This Trumpian dialect. So please, uh, listen in to find out more. We gotta make it, baby. Our time is now. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for doing this. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so I thought we would start out by talking about what got you into the philosophy of language. So how did you, how did you find philosophy of language in the first place? I think, I mean, it's one of those, I was always already interested in language and words. I was a, you know, a kid who loved to read and I liked literature. I was an English major as well as a philosophy major, but I wanted to sort of understand language in a more systematic way. Um, so that's just, I mean, those are my interests. I just, I love words and language and what people do with it. Um, but then of course, like any uh, good philosopher, I have tried to make some kind of re- justification for why I, after the fact, <laughs> I've tried to figure out why, you know, what kind of reason could I have for doing this thing? And uh, so I guess I think one thing that's, um, uh, valuable or important for me about philosophy of language is that I do think that language is a window into the mind. I don't think it's only that, but mm-hmm. I do think it does give us insight into how people think and what their motives are and, you know, their their inferential processes. And it's ultimately our best source of evidence for how people think. So in a way, I think my ultimate interests probably are more in minds, about minds, but I think language is our best sort of way of getting into that without, um, uh, but also brings, you know, interest in its own right. So one way of getting into your work in the philosophy of language and understanding what you're up to is by understanding its relation to a model of verbal communication or of how language works that you find both in philosophy of language and I think in everyday thinking. And it's a sort of coding model. And here's how communication works according to this model. So I have a thought, like the thought that Sally is tall. Um, I speak English. And English has a sentence that encodes that thought, that sort of wraps that thought in a little verbal package, namely the sentence, Sally is tall. And I say that sentence out loud to you. And uh, since you also speak English, you're able to use our shared code to sort of unwrap that package, to decode that sentence, and then you can figure out the thought that I had in mind. So philosophers of language over the years have I think, shown us a handful, maybe a big handful, maybe a small handful of ways in which this model can't really describe all or perhaps most uh, verbal communication. Um, So I think a lot of your work in the philosophy of language is in this tradition of describing types of communication or features of communication that can't be captured by this coding model. So 
can you say a little bit about what what those types of communication or features of communication are that you're especially interested in? Great. Okay. So so yeah, I think that's a nice characterization of uh, you know the the orthodox model, and and yeah, there's something really intuitive about it, and I think something importantly right about it. But that's right that that's like you know the target that I aim to you know uh, mm-hmm. break down in lots of ways. So so let's. Let me first say there's one thing to one part of what you said uh, in the model you suggested was that there's a nice match between the thought and the sentence I utter. Right. They have the same mm-hmm. shape. Um, and there are lots of cases where we use a sentence com- to communicate something that is different from what our main uh, point is, right? So the classic example in philosophy of language is a letter of recommendation for a job in, of course, philosophy, because that's the job you'd want, um, that says John is punctual and has good handwriting. If I get a letter that says that, I'm not going to conclude, I'm, I'm going to believe that John's punctual and has good handwriting, but that's not the point of the letter. The point of the letter mm-hmm. is to say John's no good as a philosopher, right? Because if I could have said something nicer and more substantive, I would have. But So the fact that I didn't shows, uh, you know, he's not a good philosopher. But clearly the sentence doesn't mean that John is not a good philosopher. The sentence means John's punctual and has good handwriting. And it's exactly the sort of avoidance of saying anything else that has, uh, you know, that creates this uh, message, right? Yeah, so there's, there's an important distinction between what a sentence means and what a speaker means on any given yeah. occasion by, by uttering. So that's the distinction that we track and we call you know, the distinction between semantics and pragmatics. Pragmatics is the, the use of sentences to communicate in certain kinds of ways. So a big part of my work is just drawing attention to uh, the rich, wide range of things people do in pragmatics. Um, and often philosophers of language have talked about pragmatics as you consign something to the dustbin of pragmatics. The thought is that pragmatics is so messy that there's no way to sort of give any kind of systematic account about that. Um, Following other people like Paul Grice and more recently people in in linguistics like Craig Roberts, um, I think that that's that's overly pessimistic. And then there are more sort of general systematic kinds of things we can say about uh, pragmatics, uh, pragmatic uses of sentences, even though at the same time, I think it's really important to recognize how messy and complicated and open-ended the kinds of things we communicate are. So within the realm of, prag- of you know, pragmatic speech, one thing that I've uh, talked about is insinuation, right? Insinuation is an, like that letter of recommendation is an example of that. I think of insinuation as uh, meaning something that's different from what you say in a way that preserves plausible deniability about it. So it's off record and you can sort of get away with pretending you didn't say it. Uh, so that's one kind of thing. Another really important part of my work has uh, focused on metaphor. And metaphor is, you know, you say, Romeo says Juliet is the sun. He doesn't mean she's a gaseous blob up in the sky. He means something about her beauty and her, uh, you know, emotional um, assertive uh, uh, attractiveness and, you know, how he makes her, how she makes him feel. Um, And those are like how the sun is in certain ways, but it's not exactly the same. 
time. So uh, an important part of what's happening there is also communicating attitudes and feelings and images, not just communicating information about how Juliet is. Um, so there's an open-endedness and a richness and a um, uh, non-informational aspect uh, that doesn't fit well into the code model. So those are those are two examples of things I've you know been interested in to sort of push on ways we use language to communicate that doesn't fit the words that are uttered. So, but so far, I didn't say anything to challenge this code model in um, within what the sentences mean, right? And mm -hmm. so, there's a really important, a really important part of the project in philosophy of language and linguistics is to um, give a systematic account of how sentences can mean what they do. Not just what people mean by those sentences, but what the sentences themselves mean. And it looks like it's gotta be that the words have mean, we assume that the words have certain kinds of meanings and it's something about the way you combine those words uh, with those meanings to make up big sentences that determines the meaning of the sentences. After all, we can, you know, generate infinitely many different sentences and understand those sentences, but, but we have presumably finite resources for comprehending them. So there's got to be something, some way in which we're building up the, you know, the complex meanings out of simpler parts. So that's the project of compositional semantics. Um, even the example that you gave, which seems so simple about Sally is tall, has been a sort mm -hmm. of classic case for uh, challenging that kind of, it's, uh, you know, it seems to challenge that model of compositionality of a building block model of a code um, in important ways. So in different contexts of utterance, speakers could use that sentence to mean that Sally is four feet tall or that Sally is six and a half feet tall or seven feet tall, depending on whether she's being compared to second graders or, uh, you know, basketball players. Lots of people have thought that's not just something that the speakers sort of do with the sentence in the way that... Um, uh, you know, the letter of recommendation case does, but something about how the sentence changes its meaning on different contexts of utterance. Yeah, there's a, so, so the difference is that, that um, when I say Sally is tall and Sally is a second grader, and I mean, she's tall for a second grader. And when I say that Sally is tall when she's in the WNBA and she's seven feet tall, um, I mean different things by tall on both of those occasions, but they both somehow sort of fit the meaning right. of the word tall. Yeah. Whereas when I say that Juliet is the sun, um, and I mean that she's sort of radiant and attractive and whatever, um, that doesn't fit the meaning right. of the I'm sun. I'm using the words, in the yeah. case of metaphor, I'm using the words to do something else. And people have thought, mm -hmm. well, you're not using the word tall to do something else, right? So... There's a there's been a big debate. Is it that the word tall is like the word I? It's a, there's a constant mm -hmm. meaning, but that it um, refers to different people on different occasions. Is the word tall like that? It there's a constant sort of rule, but it hooks onto context in different ways, so that it hooks onto a different standard. Um, that's one kind of model that brings that contextual variability, the change in the way what people communicate with the utterance. It brings it into the sentence in a way that it's not, you know, um, you don't presumably want to do for metaphor. Um, so 
So that's that kind of debate about when do we think that the ways in which what speakers communicate on a given occasion changes, to, you know, uh, depending on their purposes and the context of utterance. When do we want to import that into the sentence itself, what the sentence itself means? That's been probably one of the main core debates in the philosophy of language in the last, you know, 40, 50 years. Um, and as I was saying, most of my, a lot of my work is aimed mainly at just saying, hey, look at this really cool stuff in pragmatics that's definitely not part of sentence meaning, and we should still think about that. But I'm also interested in ways in which even inside the sentence, the code model is, um, needs to be made more richer and more complex than, you know, people might have thought. In particular, I'm interested in the ways in which um, sentences than themselves do some of the same job of communicating open-ended feelings and images and stuff, much like the way that metaphors do, but the words themselves can have that function. So slurs are an unfortunate case that I've, uh, I've thought a bunch about and that philosophers are increasingly thinking about. What are called sometimes thick terms are another kind of uh, example of that. So calling somebody... Uh, brave or courageous might build in evaluation and a, a sort of broader perspective on what it takes to be broad, brave or courageous. Um, and then just one more thing I want to say, though, is that a lot of people who, like me, pay attention to the really complex, wide range of things that people do with language um, end up being skeptical of the idea that there's any systematic core, that there's any compositional sort of uh, component to the way the language works. And I think that's too, um, too pessimistic. I think that we need to really make the model much more complex, but we shouldn't abandon it altogether. Because after all, it is true that we can comprehend an infinite number of, uh, of utterances and that there's something about the language which has, it's much more complicated and much more multidimensional and interesting than your standard formal logic that you learn, you know, in uh, college if you're forced to do that. Um, but it's that doesn't mean there's nothing there, that there's nothing really uh, sort of systematic there. So I'm interested in balancing the systematicity against the complexity and variability of what people do with language. Okay, good. So summing up a little bit then, so there are two sorts of, two very broad sorts of challenges to the code model of communication. Um, one sort of challenge is to say that, well, sometimes I, I do express a thought such as the thought that so-and-so is a bad philosopher, but not by uttering a sentence which encodes that thought, but by uttering something that sort of, you know, kind of drops a hint in the right sort of circumstances or lets you know what I have in mind in the right circumstances. So, you know, sometimes the sentences that we utter don't encode the thoughts that we're expressing. On the, other, on the other hand, there's another sort of challenge to the code model, which is that sometimes the sentences that we utter do encode what we want to express, but what we want to express aren't those sort of simple, purely informational things that could be captured, say, by by a that clause, like that Sally is tall. Sometimes they're, they're somehow richer, uh, and it's important to you that we still think about these things systematically or that we're able to sort of, you know, 
produce sort of true generalizations about or very true general models of linguistic meaning that capture those sort of funkier things that we can that that we can express and that and that our senses sometimes uh, encode. So let's turn to that. Let's focus on that. Um, so you've talked about uh, you've talked about slurs and thick terms. So what is it if those sentences containing slurs and sentences containing thick terms uh, don't encode simply purely informational uh, that clause type uh, type thoughts then what is it that they do encode what else what else are are we up to when we utter those sentences good so I mean one of the things is interesting the one of the reasons that I first started thinking about slurs in addition to the fact that uh, they're just uh, words that are extremely powerful and that have really important bad practical effects um, is that they're theoretically really interesting so they do two things so uh, I'm just gonna pick uh, a slur that I think most uh, people in the audience have heard, but it isn't one of the sort of most gut-wrenching uh, slurs for most people. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pick on uh, WAP for this case. This is one that I heard a lot growing up. So uh, it, WAP is a, a slur for Italian-Americans. If somebody applies that term to somebody, um, they do two things. They say that they belong to a certain group. And you can say that. That's a piece of information. That's a nice little packet of truth conditional information. You can say whether that's true or false. Are they Italian-American or not? So this word is partly in the standard familiar business of communicating information. But it differs from saying somebody's Italian-American because it brings in a way of thinking about Italian Americans in general that's pernicious and uh, you know um, highly objectionable. Um, I think that what uh, slurs do is commit to the appropriateness of thinking about that group under a certain perspective of saying, oh, you know, they're those kind of people. You know how they are. Um, uh, those people tend to do these kinds of things. They have these certain kinds of dispositions and, you know, smell a certain way and look a certain way and act a certain way. But none of that is in the word. And none of that is, um, that's all sort of uh, off to the side or under the table, sort of in the way that the um, uh, letter of recommendation case sort of suggested or imputed stuff under the table without sort of making it explicit. The difference is that the word swap has the job of doing That's part of its job is to communicate mm -hmm. that sort of open-ended um, uh, perspectival stuff. Yeah. Okay. So you've also argued that uh, similarly sort of open-ended perspectival stuff is involved in metaphor. You gave a talk at the Brooklyn Public Philosophers Speaker Series a little while back about just that topic. So can you say a little bit more about that? Like what, what are these, what are these perspectives that people express or endorse? I'm not quite sure what the verb is um, when they metaphorically call somebody a lapdog or a shark or call Juliet the sun. Um, or I, I think I have a pretty good handle on what the perspective is when somebody uses a, an ethnic slur like WAP, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure what the perspective is 
when people when people use this sort of metaphors. Great. Okay, so the most obvious case, the most familiar case, I think, of um, of a sort of perspectival thinking is stereotypes, right? So stereotypes are really they're they're they've got a, a sort of a lot packed into them often, but they're not something that that we articulate explicitly. Um, they're, they often have images and um, so images, feelings, attitudes, um, emotions. But what's crucial about them is that they're sort of, they're intuitive and they sort of impose a, gest- a holistic gestalt on a subject, right? They give you a way of thinking about pe- things in that category. Yeah. And they can be triggered more or less voluntarily, right? So even if... Um, I don't endorse a stereotype of women uh, as being a certain way. And even if I don't, in particular, don't think that women are bad at math, um, just being reminded that I am female uh, before I take a math test can cause Mm -hmm. me to perform worse on that math test because it that reminder evokes a stereotype that's in me that's in my mind just in virtue of you of being sort of competent in this culture and having absorbed all those you know signals and assumptions that um, we you know have in in this in today's society about women so a perspective is a uh, intuitive collection of ins- assumptions um, that uh, is provides a mode of interpretation a way of uh, noticing, responding to, um, and explaining a particular subject. Um, Stereotypes are a good example, but we also uh, have lots of uh, more sort of context-specific and idiosyncratic uh, ways of thinking about particular things that don't, um, aren't encoded, you know, that aren't culture-wide in the way that stereotypes are. So Mm -hmm. to Rough first approximation, that's what perspectives are for me. So when uh, Romeo says, Juliet is the sun, he's offering a mode of interpretation, a way of thinking about Juliet, a principle for, you know, um, what should you notice about her? What should you pay attention to about her? And how should you feel and respond to her when, you know, you, for whatever particular things, you, however, whatever she does on a particular occasion? Yeah, I think that's really, really helpful. I think it's it's helpful in in part because we'll return to the concept of of framing in a little bit. But um, you've you've often talked about about fr- framing in this connection, and there's something there's something very appealing about there's something very natural about the idea that conversations have frames or that people can frame subjects in a certain way in conversation. And that's something really important that we do when we talk to each other, but it's also really hard to kind of put a finger on exactly what that is. And I think, I think those things that you're talking about salience or noticeability uh, and this evaluative or attitudinal or emotional things, I think that begins to, you know, really, yeah, really help make more, make more precise or explicit what people often have in mind when they talk about framing a subject in a certain way. You know, let's talk a little bit about insinuation because it's something that I know you're working on, you're working on right now. So you described or maybe defined insinuation a little while, a little while back as, um, as follows, <laughs> somebody uh, somebody insinuates something 
uh, insinuates some claim or some speech act more generally, like insinuates a request or a command or, or uh, some expression of some attitude or emotion, when they, they mean that request or command or attitude or emotion, but th they can more or less plausibly deny having, having made that request or issued that command or etc. So, so it's important to your idea of insinuation, or you're, you're, you're thinking about insinuation, that insinuation is meant by the speaker. And philosophers of language uh, who, who pay a lot of attention to use, to pragmatics, often make a distinction between, um, it's an ugly phrase, but perlocutionary acts and illocutionary acts, where illocutionary acts are things like making assertions, requests, commands, expressing praise or thanks or congratulations. And perlocutionary acts are things like confusing somebody by speaking or you know, <laughs> shaking the walls of a room by shouting really loudly. Those sorts of effects that you have on your environment and on your, and on your hearers that aren't really meant in any way, that uh, somebody doesn't have to recognize in order for them to understand what you're saying. So uh, insinuation is for you an, an illocutionary act, but I wonder whether that's intuitively always the case. The, a, an example that struck me thinking about this yesterday was uh, Mark Antony's speech in Julius Caesar. Uh, it's his funeral or oration for Caesar, and he says, well, you know, Caesar was a great guy, and he was this great public servant, and he wasn't a tyrant, but you know, Brutus says he was ambitious, which is supposed to be a bad thing. And Brutus is an honorable man. Um, and he keeps on coming back to this refrain. And I, it seems to me that what's going on in Mark Antony's speech is that he's sort of pointing out or sort of guiding people towards recognizing yep. this contrast between Caesar's actual yep. character and the fact that Brutus uh, uh, conspired to kill him. It, intuitively for me, he's insinuating that Brutus is is a bad guy or something to that effect but he's not he doesn't actually mean it he's not he's not actually illocuting that in any in any sense um so do you think that in, insinuation might sometimes be a, a perlocutionary act in in cases like that or and i think also so i think we have a bit of a choice point here i mean i could just insist no illocute you know insinuation is always illocuted meaning um and then what i would need to say is but uh, often the stuff that's going on here is at the boundary between, you know, illocutionary and perlocutionary meaning. And so some of these things are going to be insinuations mm -hmm. and some of them are going to be something like foreseeable consequences of the utterance, right? And maybe uh -huh. foreseeable desired consequences of the utterance, but not, uh, you know, all, not what's meant. And whether we call those insinuations or not, I don't think that the term insinuation has like a, you know, crisp meaning that makes that divide. Good, yeah. Um, what I'm concerned to, you know, what I do want to insist on, argue for, you know, make the claim about is that not all insinuation is merely perlocutionary, is outside the realm of mm -hmm. being meant. Um, so I think there are, you know, lots of cases where the speaker's main point is this off the record um, uh 
content and uh, you haven't understood the audience in a very important way, hasn't understood the utterance if they don't uh, pick up on that. Um, so just to make a segue from your Julius Caesar case to contemporary uh, life, um, in James Comey's testimony to the Senate on Thursday, there was a discussion about Henry II uh, saying to his court, there's a different versions. And so what, what was uh, reported in the Senate was, will no one rid me of this uh, priest? Um, another version of that is something like, oh, what uh, low, you know, what miserable drones uh, there are who let me, you know, <clears throat> let their king be blasphemed by this, you know, this lowborn cleric. So the next day, Thomas Becket was killed. Now, Henry II did not say, go kill Thomas Becket. Uh, but he didn't just... He really did not just merely express his uh, feelings of uh, sadness or disenchantment, right, or annoyance, right? Mm -hmm. He, by making that utterance, the point of making that utterance in the classic presentations of the case um, was to get those guys to go do that thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. They took themselves to be carrying out his order, but it was an indirect, inexplicit, insinuated order. And so what the reason that this case came up in Comey's testimony was the question was whether in saying, I hope you can let this Flynn thing go, uh, Donald Trump was merely expressing his own personal sentiments and leaving it up to um, uh, his audience, in this case, uh, James Comey, who he had just gotten to be alone in a room with him, um, uh, to do what he wanted to with that uh, information. Or was that utterance a direction, uh, a, 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 some kind of imperative order, command, request to Comey to drop the Flynn investigation. Um, and yeah. the argument was exactly over this, right? It was exactly about whether it was part of what Trump meant that um, Comey should drop the investigation. And to my ear, just to, Hearing what I Comey said about the ordinary about those circum the circumstances of utterance, uh, I agree there are other circumstances in which Trump might have merely been expressing his own feelings, uh, and it would have been up to Comey to make you know sort of uh, do what he wanted to with that information. But in that context, uttered in that way, it seems very plausible to me that Trump's point, what he meant, was you should do this thing, and indeed your job is likely contingent. So, uh, you gave a talk a couple of months back about Trumpian language, the sort of sneaky or weaselly communicative devices that you um, find in the speech of Trump and his cohort. You offered this interesting, rich taxonomy of, of types of types of sneaky things that they do, uh, and I'm not going to ask you to recap that whole thing now. But um, in addition to insinuation, how else has your work in the philosophy language helped you understand, like w how Trump talks and and how it's been so successful so, so far. Let me just, I won't, I won't go through this. I had 10 different types of uh, speech acts that he does. <laughs> and there are all ways in which um, he 
uh, communicates in ways that uh, depart from the presentation of information which is easily verifiable as true or false, and so make it mm-hmm. hard to hold somebody accountable. Some of those we've already talked about, insinuation, um, sarcasm, coming close to saying something but not quite saying it. Um, there are others that we've all, that are sort of related to things that we've talked about um, already, which is a kind of, there's a kind of amorphousness about the meaning um, that -hmm. makes it hard to pin down. So when he says something like, many people are saying, well, exactly who? Well, that's the wrong kind of response, right? Uh, He says, you know, you know, people, you know, there's a kind of generic quality to the evidence that's being presented that makes it hard to provide a demonstrable truth or falsity. Also, just sort of, you know, giving giving an example, uh, what is sometimes called anecdata, right? So providing a particular mm-hmm. anecdote as exemplary of a broader kind of phenomenon. So those are things that he does fairly often. And then I think are related to what we were just saying about insinuation. They It's important to recognize, uh, and it was useful to me to have thought about these things before, uh, you know, encountering Trump in the <clears throat> robust way that I came to be, um, that uh, these are all things ordinary people do, and for good reasons as well as bad mm-hmm. reasons. Um, these are just ordinary parts of speech, right? Um, even bullshitting is something, you know, it's something we do in, in locker rooms maybe, but in other arenas of life as well. Um, and there are um, good communicative reasons for doing those kinds of things. Um, so I think that the fact that I think about this, these uses of language and what their functional roles are, what they're good for, what they're sort of performing in ordinary communication, help me to be more sympathetic, especially to um, why people would respond, not so much to Trump himself, but to why people would respond to these modes of speech as revealing a sort of, you know, ordinary way, ordinary guy telling it like it is, right? Um, mm-hmm. So that that is something uh, I think that you know was was useful for me. Another thing is that um, a lot of these uses of speech do. Um, traffic in or are related to the expression of a perspective, right? They're not so much about the presentation of a particular piece of information, but, uh, you know, sort of painting a picture of how the world is in general. So there's a slogan that a lot of Trump's uh, critics take him literally, but not seriously, while his supporters take him seriously, but not literally. Um, And so what would it mean to take somebody seriously, but not literally? Um, I think it means to, in this case at least, to think that he's after something. He's getting, he's articulating, he's expressing, he's uh, manifesting a perspective uh, on the world that resonates with these people. And the particular utterances are just a way of expressing that or manifesting that. And so it's sort of beside the point and distracting to worry about the literal truth or falsity of that particular utterance, because the whole point is the larger perspective that they reveal. Um, So that also, again, in a way, helped me to be more sympathetic to why people and to understand why people are, have been as responsive as they have to Trump's mode of discourse and what he's saying. It doesn't make it a whole lot more comforting, but it helps me feel less uh, incomprehending or alien um, uh, about the, the Trump supporters. Yeah, that's that's helpful. So, so one one question I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days 
after the after Comey's testimony last week, Chris Christie, the governor <laughs> of New Jersey, uh, <laughs> I should say for people who don't know that that you're recording this in. In, well, no, you don't. You're you're recording this in Philly, but you teach in exactly. New Jersey. Okay, excuse me. But it's yeah, all okay. part of the same okay. yeah. cesspool, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Philly's great, <laughs> uh, but anyway, the uh, yeah, Chris Christie said by way of apology for Trump, I guess that um, when he insinuated that um, uh, that Comey should uh, should stop investigating the campaign and uh, the firing of Michael Flynn or the circumstances that led to Michael Flynn's being fired, that it was just a, a, a normal New York conversation. Um, and this brought to mind another defense that I've seen of other horrible things Trump has said after the Access Hollywood tapes came out. The standard right-wing response became uh, that this is just locker room talk. And what both of these sorts of defenses have in common is that they justify Trump's speech by saying that it took place in a type of interaction that permits that sort of speech. So, oh, no, you only thought that was a formal workplace professional encounter between the president and you know, somebody who serves at his, at his uh, yeah. Um, but no, it was a normal New York City conversation. And no, you only thought he was at work. <laughs> uh, but no, he was in a locker room. Of, he was in a metaphorical locker room, I guess. So sometimes sociologists and sociolinguists use the idea of a frame to describe the sort of definition of a situation that uh, participants in an interaction share. So their understanding of what type of interaction it is, so formal workplace exchange versus, you know, bull session with the guys or whatever. And sometimes also sociolinguists and sociologists will claim that the different frames will have different sort of moral properties, that they'll permit certain sorts of speech acts or claims or topics of conversation and, and forbid others. And, you know, this Christie's claim and the locker room defense of, of uh, the Access Hollywood tapes are both appeals to frames in this sense to justify, to justify Trump's speech. So... This idea of a frame, it's unclear to me whether it has anything to do with the idea of framing that you mm-hmm. that you write about. Um, the idea of a frame is mm-hmm. sort of notoriously mm-hmm. ambiguous. Does does your work on framing of, of the sort you often think about uh, give you any purchase on, help you understand framing in the definition of the situation type sense? Right. So I think there is something very similar about both notions, which is... Uh, providing an intuitive background structure, which um, serves, sets up interpretation of particular things and in particular utterances in particular, a particular, you know, um, utterances by specific people within conversations. So that's, that's a deep commonality between the two kinds of notions of frame. Um, That said, I think they are pretty different um, in the sense that the sort of the, the kinds of things that the sociolinguists are talking about here are structural assumptions about 
the situation, about the conversational situation. So a philosopher might say there's sort of um, their meta level assumptions or assumptions about the conversation. Whereas the kinds of frames that I'm thinking about, they're also offering sort of interpretive structures that help you understand something. But instead of helping you understand what kind of conversation we're having, they help you understand the particular subject that we're talking about, right? So when Romeo gives you the sun as a frame for thinking about Juliet, um, that's for thinking about Juliet, not about Mm -hmm. is this a romantic encounter or a business encounter, right? Good. Do you have time for one more? Do you have time for one more? I've got time. i got all the time in the world today. (laughs) Okay, great. Um, So I wanted to ask, what sorts of recommendations do you have then for people who are in political discourse, or for that matter elsewhere, but let's focus on political discourse, confronted with utterances which express uh, gross perspectives? Like, what can you do to, what can you do to combat those apart from just saying like, no, I disagree. So I think um, is not easy. Uh, I think there's no one general answer, but so I have, there are a couple kinds of um, strategies that I, um, I don't, would offer. Um, one is, uh, 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 I'm a big advocate of pedantry, um, <laughs> of taking, and, and in this case in particular of um, uh, going over the top in being sort of earnestly literal and sincere and insisting on taking a speaker at their word or at when they're trying to insinuate something else, you just focus in a laser narrow way on exactly what they did mm-hmm. say. Or if it's something like a slur, which itself is, you know, the words themselves are objectionable, um, just at responding with flat-footed incomprehension. So I'm sorry, I, I, I just don't understand what you might be saying here, you know, um, and sort of shift in a lot of these cases, what the speaker is doing is trying to shift interpretive responsibility onto the hearer. Um, and so refusing to take up that, uh, sort of that baton and sort of, you know, sort of leaving it hanging, it can be very uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable, at least as uncomfortable for the speaker as for the hearer. Um, so that's one kind of response. Another thing that I think is more important, but again, really requires being quick on your feet and, uh, um, imaginative is trying to uh, fight fire with fire by reframing the um, the situation for yourself. So not just as long as you let that sort of um, intuitive, low-level um, sort of perspective um, fester or, you know, uh, dominate your thinking, even if you don't um, endorse it, even if the hearer doesn't endorse it, it's going to continue to have this intuitive effect on, on your thinking and on the conversation. Um, but, you know, just as psychological studies show that stereotype threat is real, that just mentioning something can, you know, cause people to act in stereotype conforming ways, those studies are also kind of um, uh, optimistic in the sense that they often also show that those stereotypes can be overwritten um, by alternative kinds of mm-hmm. frames fairly easily. Um, so if you can, as a speaker, as a hearer, find a different frame for encapsulating some of the main 
claims or interests or points that the speaker does have in a more positive light, then I think that can be a really effective mode of response. Yeah, some people might be more uh, skilled at, at pedantry and yes. some people <laughs> might be more skilled at, at finding sort of apt metaphors or apt ways of so, expressing perspectives other than the one that it's, you know, is sort of already at hand. Yeah. The world needs both philosophers and poets. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly it, isn't it? <laughs> um, great. Well, thank you so much. This was this was a real a real blast. I I I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it uh, enormously. Interesting stuff, really. Wouldn't it be great if a Trump actually recycled that locker room metaphor and used it to to actually lock up? some of his uh, speech acts yeah that would be that would be someday but unfortunately that's for another day's discussion until next time that is all from the owl <laughs>